Good morning, guys. Thank you for coming and joining with us today. I'm super excited to see so many faces here this morning, to see all of you, and online. So glad you tuned in. We're remembering you too. We're glad you're with us as well. If you don't know me, my name is Amberly. I'm many things, including Michael's wife and part of the lead team here at CT Brandon. And I'm going to conclude our message, our series here on loose lips with handling church conflict. That's what we're working on, we're talking about today. So we've been looking at scriptural views on gossip, on lying, criticism, and complaining, right? So, so far, our perspective has been outward focused, right? We've talked lots about how when we have loose lips, it hurts our witness, it hurts our testimony. Our witness is impacted, our light shines less bright when we have a reputation in our community as being one with loose lips. Our personal relationships suffer when we can't get our tongue under control. Loose lips hurt us as individuals. But loose lips also have another very real victim, more often than not. And that is the Bride of Christ, right? Our local church. The local church is often impacted when its individual members have loose lips. So when you and I gossip about one another, when we criticize and critique the leadership and the structure of our churches, when we complain, when we let our mouths run rampant, we're acting against kingdom principles, right? Churches that struggle to live out their purpose, and their purpose is to be a hope and a light in their community, very rarely they're struggling because of some great leadership sin. It happens. We can all think a big church is brought down by moral failure, you know, whatever, some sort of thing. But more often than not, churches that are struggling to reach outward, churches that are struggling to get their feet under them, churches that never grow, it's death by a thousand cuts, right? It's never one big thing, it's just constant. You know, it's church people who are constantly, you know, keeping each other accountable, but they're just mean. It's prayer chains that are actually just gossip chains, it's weekly emails to your pastor letting him know how he could preach more like T.D. Jakes. It's grouchy worshipers who only choose to engage when it's a song they like. It's the little tisks. It's the little whispers. It's nothing major, but it is a constant, tiny sin. And it binds the church. We know. We've heard the stats. We've read the reports. We've seen the blogs. The evangelical church is losing its influence. It's decreasing in size and influence in our communities. Most churches, honestly, have either plateaued and their only growth is new kids, right? Like how many churches, the last time they had baptisms was an adult baptized a new convert. It's almost all children. Or honestly, they're in the decline. Now, we have been taught, I have taught from the pulpit that it is the fault of a world around us. The world does not want to hear the message of Jesus Christ. The world is evil. The world is bad. They're all postmodern. Nothing is true. The devil has taken our children. Blah, blah, blah. Scripture does not give us this easy way out. The world has always been the world. The early church was birthed in the Roman Empire, an empire hostile to Christianity. The culture in Rome was significantly more demonic and evil than anything happening in Ottawa right now. And yet the book of Acts tells us 
that members were added to their number daily. Daily. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, right? But if I believe that, then blaming an unsaved world for the church's failings is cowardly. It's cowardly. We need to look at the specks and the planks in our collective eyes. John 13, 34 and 35 says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by our love, all men will know that you are my disciples and that you love one another. These are Jesus' words, one of his last teachings before the cross. Our corporate witness as the body of Christ is directly linked to how we love one another. If we do not love one another, we cannot expect to recognize, the world to recognize that we are Christ's disciples. It's right there. Jesus did not say that they will know us by our piety, that they will know us by our protest. He didn't say that they will know us by our programs or that they will know us by our respectability. That is not what Jesus said. Churches full of proper, respectable people behaving correctly in public are nice churches. They're nice. They're full of lovely, nice people that are void of love. And I've been to many nice churches. I'm sure you've been to many nice churches. They have nice worship. They have a nice sermon. They have nice church ladies in the lobby shaking your hand, asking how your week was. They have nice groups. They have all these nice things. But churches can be so very nice but have lips so loose that they threaten to fall off. Jesus has a word for that. He calls them out. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Everything is nice and respectable on the inside, but the, on the outside, but the inside is dead and rotting and disgusting. We know those nice churches. They, nice churches, they don't have church conflict. They have, bless you, pastor. They have, well, isn't that nice? They also have not-so-secret behind-door meetings and not-so-secret power players with not-so-secret agendas. And I know that I am so over nice churches. I'm done with it. I'm over it. We must curb our unhealthy church conflict in fueled by loose lips, honestly, because a dying, not a dating world, the dating world out there, I don't know. <laughs> That's great. Because a dying world is dependent. A dating world also requires people of integrity, I guess, I know some friends who are on like church mingle and stuff, they also require some integrity in our lives. But unrelated, a dying world requires and depends that we curb unhealthy church conflict. Furthermore, we need to curb unhealthy church conflict because the next generation will simply not stand for it. They will reject institutionalized church if they see that it offers no better option in the cynical, disillusioned world they interact with every day. Pastor Jeremy Martini, Dr. Derek Jeremy Martini, was here a few weeks ago, and he talked about a book called Faith for Exiles. And it's a sociology, sociology book um, by the Barna Institution. And they stuttered, studied thousands of millennials, and they looked at those. Usually those studies want to know what is driving 
millennials. Millennials, by the way, is my age and younger. So when we talk about millennials, young people, they're actually old already. They're already like moms and dads. So they're talking about this crew, this group. And um, usually we ask, say, well, what's driving them away from church? Whoa, what was me? What has culture done to our young people? But they actually started to look at young people who stayed, young adults, millennials who stayed, young adults. <laughs> I'm not a young adult. Uh, millennials who stayed. I remember the first time an actual young adult, I was saying, well, you know, like young adults like us. And she was about 22. I was probably 30. And she was like, you're not a young adult. Do you think you're a young adult? And I went home and I cried. And, um, but anyways, they surveyed all these people. And how, why did they stay in church as they transitioned? So one of the keys to keeping the next generation involved in our institutionalized churches, it's healthy intergenerational relationships. Because we know that young people aren't necessarily rejecting Jesus. They certainly aren't respecting spirituality, but they will reject church. In order, and this is a quote from the book, and it says, in order to create and foster healthy intergenerational relationships, we must, I'm going to pop it up there, we must overlook offense, we need to forgive, we show mercy, we show grace, we disabuse ourselves of our own pipe dreams and the illusions of Christian community in order for the power of that community to take effect. I love that last line, right? Like, we let go of what our dream is for a Christian community, and then that's when Christian community can actually walk in power. Jesus says nearly the exact same thing in Matthew 5, and he says, in a word, and this is from the message version, so in a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. You are kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others, the way God lives towards you. I love the way that um, scripture is written in the message. I love that. There's no mincing words, right? Like Jesus does not, Jesus never really beats around the bush, but really he's like, grow up. Grow up. Like it's time to do some spiritual adulting, people. And we're all we're like, adulting is hard. And adulting is hard. Spiritual adulting is hard. Controlling our lips is hard. Not acting, not wanting the milk. We talked about milk and meat, the milk. We want that. And Jesus says, grow up. In the NIV, Matthew 5 ends with, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. No big deal. Be perfect, right? I am perfect every Tuesday. I'm not perfect on Thursdays because Thursdays is BG Club and nobody can be perfect at BG Club. It's just, it's impossible. There's too many of them against us. But on Tuesdays though, I could be perfect, maybe. No, of course not. And James 3 gives us this little hint as to why we're never going to be perfect and what it would take to be so. And it says, if you could find someone whose speech was perfectly true, you'd have a perfect person in perfect control of their life. So, let's recap. Our corporate witness to a hurting world is directly linked to how we love one another. Next, healthy intergenerational relationships are essential if we want to engage future generations in the life of Christ. They will simply walk away from institutionalized church if we don't get this right. They are going to walk from churches full of politics. Worse yet, and honestly, I do think this is worse, they will start to believe that that is how you work with one another. I remember being at a church a while ago, and 
whatever. There was a thing. There's always a thing. And people were writing letters to the board. And as I realized and I saw and I had privy to who had been writing these letters, I realized that this, it had been started with a group that was in their 40s-ish, but then they were recruiting, sharing with a bunch of 20-year-olds who are now writing letters to the board, letting them know their frustrations. And I was like, isn't that an awesome thing to duplicate and disciple in our next generation? When you're irritated with someone, get that letter out to that board. What are we doing? Our bad behavior becomes the millstone around their necks. Next, we foster healthy relationships by living graciously and generously, loving each other perfectly the way Jesus loves us. And then finally, controlling our tongues is an essential part of loving perfectly. There is no love with loose lips. James, again, in chapter 4, says, So where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Do you think church conflict just happens? No, think again. They come because we want our own way. Right? Unhealthy church conflict is fueled by, self, by the, sins, the selfish sins of offense and control. So I'm going to tell a couple stories about when I had to walk through this and how God brought me some, I believe, some revelation on unhealthy church conflict. And then we're going to do some do's and don'ts, and then we're going to pray. So story one. I'm not sure if you've seen my kids ripping around here at any given time, but Jude and Ida are about 19 months apart, right? And before we had kids, Michael and I were married about 10 years before we had kids. Um, and we were both very active in ministry. We were both very hands-on. I mean, if he was there, I was there. I wasn't working for a good portion of our youth pastoring time. So, like, legit, we were both probably 60, 70 hours a week at the church and loving our lives. Even when Jude was born and we were first starting to church plant, just starting to get our fingers in, you know, just dipping our toes in church planting, Jude was in a, one of those baby bucket things, like infant. And I remember us laying hands on him and praying that he would stay asleep and quiet so we could finish our first pitch meeting. Uh, we went to a big church planting conference and I remember chatting with some of the other women. They were like, how old is your baby? I'm like, oh, he's five and a half weeks. They're like, why are you here? I'm like, we need to, we've got things to get done. And they're like, you, I remember being at meetings with different planting organizations and like sitting around tables with all these men and Jude was under a blanket nursing because I was, I'm going to be in the room where it happens, right? Like if it's going down, I'm there. But that's okay when they're in a bucket. It gets significantly harder as they get mobile and can make noise and, you know, all those things. And so by the time we actually got our feet on the ground, we're actually planting. Jude was about 15 months old and I was pregnant with Ida. And so for about the first two to three years of our planting journey, uh, I was essentially in the nursery because that's just where you go. I kind of didn't leave. I was still leading, but it was really, really different, right? I wasn't up front. I wasn't leading worship. I couldn't stay late for you know, like the late night work bees. I couldn't go out for wings with all the guys after. I just was outside of the culture. I went, my role within that church changed. I went from always being there, being the decision maker, creating the culture, being that one to this like weird mom who really cared that the nursery toys were sanitized correctly. And it was like, honestly, it felt like overnight that this transition happened. So about the time Ida was about two and a half, it started to change. I started to feel like I could probably start upfront leading again. They were somewhat controllable. 
And, um, you know, I was like, I can do this. But honestly, it was like emerging into a foreign land. I can't even describe it because I came out and this church that I'd helped birth, like not just like I'd attended there for a long time, but like legit, this had been my dream. I came out and like, I didn't know everybody. I wanted to lead worship again, but I didn't know any of the new songs. They would tease me and laugh when it was my turn and I'd pick my set list. They're like, it's oldie hour. And I'm like, it's not oldie, that's Bethel. Bethel's cool. I'm cool. I'm hip, right? No. But they would just tease me and like, they were all young and they're cute and they have like ripped jeans and they're fedoras and they're all awesome. And I'm like this weird frumpy mom. And it was just weird. The church I had helped build, it didn't look like me. It didn't sound like me. It didn't feel like me. And it all came to a head. One Sunday, it was the week before Easter, a couple weeks before Easter, and I walked in to church, probably late, probably in a bad mood because someone pooped their pants or, I don't know, something. You know, right? Because that's how, if you want to be there on time, that is for sure the day somebody's going to decide that their shoes must be on the wrong feet or they will not leave the house. Right? That's just how it rolls. And I walk into church, and they decorated for Easter, and there was a selfie wall. Now, a selfie wall, you were supposed to take your picture in front of it and post it to social media. I'm not sure if you can get a full picture of what I mean, so I'm going to show you here what I mean by a selfie wall. Here we go. There's Michael circa whenever in front of the selfie wall. NHC Neighborhood Church, and our Easter series was called Grave Robber. We were cool like that. And um, so this is what it is, right? And I was just like mad. I can't even describe it. I was just mad. I can't really imagine here this morning if ever you, I realize it's silly, but who could ever imagine be offended by, for example, a wall? Right? Something so petty and small as a wall. But there I was, and I was unimpressed. And I think I knew in my heart that I was being petty, that I was making a mountain out of a molehill. Like, I think I knew, but in that moment, I was blind to all that. And of course, I did the reasonable thing. I marched up to Michael, and I said, take it down. He's like, what, what are you talking I'm like, take it down. Take that wall, take it down. And like, I didn't stop and ask him, why do we have a selfie wall? I didn't stop and think about the young people who had spent hours designing and building this cool creative set and all the hours and the energy and the talents God had used them to do. I didn't really think about that. I just said, take it down. I didn't, there's no rationale, right? I just marched up to him and said, this is, take it down. Now. So, you know, I'm a nice church lady sometimes. I am nice. And because I'm a nice church lady, I've been in church long enough, it's not like I said, I don't like that wall, take it down. I firmly knew in my heart of hearts that my belief was actually scriptural, and it was actually Jesus talking through me. And I came up to Jesus, and I said, or not to Jesus, to Michael, and I said, hey, you know, a selfie wall, that does not belong in church, because I must decrease, and he must increase. And so we shouldn't be doing selfies, we need to be doing Jesus's. That's actually how it should be. Your wall is offending my spirit, it's just not okay with Jesus in the Bible right? I was offended by decorations, and I'd convinced myself that my offense was actually some sort of holiness God thing. And my husband, if you ever had a chat with him, he doesn't put up with a lot of shenanigans, and he certainly doesn't put up with a lot of shenanigans from me, 
and that's good, and vice versa. But um, I think actually, honestly, he just said no and then laughed and walked away from me. Like, I don't even think he engaged with me at all. He just laughed and said, yeah, no. And I had a choice in that minute. Do I hold on to my offense? What do I do? So I took it to God, and I really listened, and I questioned my own motives, and I asked him to reveal any wickedness in my heart. And I realized it wasn't about a wall. I was feeling insecure about my new role. I didn't know how I would fit, I didn't know if I would fit, and I was grieving a loss of identity, right? I'd forgotten that my identity is first and foremost as a child of God, and secondly, as a leader in the church. But I was hurt by this changing role, and it was easier to project that hurt outward as offense and anger than it was to do the hard work of looking inward. When we are offended, we need to stop and identify what we're really feeling. An unaware person and an unclean heart will lead to unhealthy church conflict. The second story was a little while later. We had close friends, and they were just going through it in their marriage. There had been adultery, there was broken trust, it was a mess, like it was just a disaster. And as their pastors and as their really close friends, we'd been doing everything we could help. We were praying with them, we were at their house a lot, we were just whatever we could do. And as a church body, we really surrounded them during this time, and we just tried our best to pour in and love them and pray for them. And then one Sunday morning, and I was at home with the kids, and uh, about the service started at 11, and about 5 to 11, you know, right when everyone would normally 10 to 11 be gathered for pre-service prayer, we get a group text from the husband of this couple, letting us know that we were all the worst, our sin was his fault, we were tanking the church, um, but it wasn't that he was hurt, he just wanted to let us know, and so we never did it to anybody else, you know, and... I'm sure at the church they handled it much more maturely, but at home I was just, I'm mad. Like, I'm done with this man at this point. I'm done with that whole, I'm just done. And I was like, no, it's me and the kids there. I don't know what they're doing, watching Dora or something. And I'm just done. I'm ready to wash my hands of this guy and pretend he doesn't exist. I am just finished with this. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pray the Bible over him. And I want to pray those verses where God smites their enemies and like smashes his kids against their rocks and breaks all their teeth. That's what I'm going to do because I was so frustrated. I was like, you know what? We've tried. It's time for tough love. It is time for righteous anger. I don't know what I said to myself, but I'm like, it is done. And I'm going to start praying this because I'm really holy like that sometimes. And so I legit start looking up verses where God smites people's enemies. And he brings me to Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. So first time I read this, all I read is like, and he's going to heap burning coals on his head. I'm like, yes, God hurts people who hurt my feelings. God's on my side. Whatever I want. When someone's mean to me, God heaps coals on their heads. And I'm like, yeah, that's how it is, right? Take that, enemies. And then God's like, Holy Spirit's like, yeah. Like, read the footnotes. So I read, burning coals refers to an ancient Near East practice where a guilty person carries a basin of glowing coals over his or her head as a sign of repentance. When I treat those who have hurt me with kindness, God uses my humble actions to bring about repentance and ultimately to restore broken relationships. And that's exactly what happened. We absorbed those hurt words 
and return them in kindness. As a team, we were committed to not using shame or anger as a tool to try to force him into correcting his behavior. We continued to love, we continued to pray. And then, one Sunday morning, he walked into the church. We were doing a church conference weekend, and he hadn't been to church in months. And he walked in, and Michael met him in the lobby, gave him a big hug, and he was back home. The marriage was saved, the relationship was saved. God used our kindness, our humility, our tiny act to bring about repentance. And that's the same thing he does for us, right? His kindness brings us to repentance. God does it for us. We can do it for others. Because a humble heart full of sacrificial love will decimate the lies that create unhealthy church conflict. So when I am offended because of my own insecurities and my own sin, like in the first story, I need to go to God and I need to work it out. When I am offended because of somebody else's insecurity or sin, first, I need to go to God and I need to work it out. We never told him. We never would have been like, we forgive you. It just wasn't a thing. We took it to Jesus and Jesus took care of things. Every little thing doesn't have to become something. So conflict is going to happen, but it doesn't have to be unhealthy. It doesn't have to be. Strong organizational cultures allow conflict, and they deal with it in appropriate ways. And guess what? It makes them stronger. A king, this kingdom, God's kingdom, thrives on diversity. So I want to make a little side note, a little aside. Conflict isn't spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse is when a leader or a structure or a system uses control to manipulate you. We've been in situations with immature leaders or spiritual abusive situations. We didn't wait and pray. We didn't just take it to God. We just left. So this is not that. But I'm talking about regular, everyday conflict. And it's healthy and it's good. But it has to be handled correctly. So I have a couple little friends here, and they're going to help me with a little case study we've got here. We're going to look at a pretend church conflict between a couple little buddies who are going to come on up here. Michael's dying a little bit on the inside that this is happening. If you haven't guessed it by now, if you haven't noticed, he's the cool one. I'm not the cool one ever, but that's all right. I'm quite comfortable with who I am. <laughs> so we've got some little friends here. They're going to come help us out. Hi, guys. So this is Billy. Billy, oh, Billy's had a little bit of a too much sugar last night. You going to make it, Billy? This is Billy. Billy is a man, although he's got some fabulous shoes on, but this is still Billy. And this here is Lily. And Billy and Lily go to a very nice church. So they've been, you know, Billy's been at the church, well, his whole life, actually. In like, they have this framed wall of pictures up in their church, and his grandpa actually was the church's first treasurer, and his picture's up in that framed wall of glass. And um, so that's Billy. He's been here generations in this church. Lily, she like came to church when she was a teenager, kind of, then her family moved away, and now she's back, though. And, you know, she wants her children to be raised in the church. It's not totally her thing. She's not 100% sure she's into it, but it's important for her family. So they have just started coming back. Now, Billy, Billy has been buying the toilet paper, like not paying for it, but buying it for the church for the last 10 years. He considers buying toilet paper his ministry. He calls it blessings for bottoms. And it's super important to him. Now, Lily, she is a traveling toilet paper salesperson. 
And she comes into this church, and it's new, and she's liking it. She thinks the music is good. Her kids like it downstairs. And she's like, you know, I know how I could serve. I could provide free toilet paper. I could give them TP for free. So she goes to the pastor, and she's like, I, I want to serve in this way. I want to I provide toilet paper. And the pastor's like, amazing, that's great. Our toilet paper budget is out of control. Free toilet paper would be amazing. Thank you. So he goes up to Billy the next Sunday, and he says, hey, Billy, we have a new person who's going to provide toilet paper. You don't need to do blessings for bottoms anymore. Thank you so much for serving. And Billy smiles and says, bless you, pastor. That's so nice. Conflict has happened. What should they do? So we have some do's and don'ts to help us out. First is, don't be an ostrich. Pretending conflict doesn't exist is not healthy and it's going to lead to resentment and it can make a small problem even bigger. Billy keeps telling everyone, he's fine. It's fine. I'm fine. Even though he isn't. Lily, she has no idea that anything is even wrong. Do address issues as they arise. Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace that God, of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and it will defile many. When we ignore conflict, when we just smile and say, isn't that nice? We, um, a bitter root can grow in us. Ignoring conflict is not the same as peace. We can't just ignore it. Second, don't be an elephant. See, we need to keep short accounts. Billy, he remembers Lily from the youth group. He remembers that YC back in 1996 when he spilt mustard on his shirt and all the girls saying yellow submarine every time he'd walk into the room. For like the next six months, he remembers that Lily, she was one of those girls, and he seriously doubts her Christian character has improved any since then. She really probably has no, no business serving in a church, not someone like that. Lily, she's still unaware that she's done anything wrong. Do forgive quickly. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ has forgiven you. God has forgiven us completely, yet we routinely withhold forgiveness to others. Next, don't expect that everyone is going to value the same things you do. Billy, he really cares about quality three-ply toilet paper. He firmly believes that a good experience in the bathroom prepares one's heart and one's mind for worship. Lily, she's just trying to help. Do value the diversity of opinion and beliefs. Corinthians 12, 12 to 27 reminds us that we are a body made up of many parts. We aren't to say to another part, I don't need you, right? The eye and the foot are so very different, but we function best when we're all working together. Furthermore, we do ourselves a disservice when we overestimate our own personal importance. You have no idea how many people, especially when we're, wow, anytime I've walked up and been like, if this doesn't change, I'm going to leave and you don't know, what will the church do without me? Like, they legit think, like, what will a band do without me? It seems to be musicians a lot of times, and honestly, in my experience, it was a lot of bass players, and they're like, I don't know what the band's going to do without me. And I'm like a keyboard player, I'm like, I don't know, move my hand down an octave and go bong, bong, bong. Like, I love that you're serving, but, like, we are most important when 
we are functioning together. All alone we are weak and together we are strong. Our tithe, our position, how long we've been sitting in this chair does not give us our importance as the body of Christ. Our importance in the body of Christ is driven by the way we love and interact with one another. Next, don't assume the worst in people. Billy, he's sure Lily's doing this on purpose. He doesn't know what, but she's got some sort of plan. She's just sneaky. He knows it. He tells his wife at supper or at lunch after church, his spirit is just grieved by her spirit. It's like something in her is just stirring him up. He knows something's just not right about her. And Lily, she doesn't know why Billy gave her a dirty look last, this Sunday when she said good morning. Do prefer one another. Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Put others first. Assume they have good motives and not bad. Next is don't send pointed emails to the pastor or the board, at least not as a first step. So Billy emails the pastor and he sees he's his golf buddy who happens to be on the board. He just wants to know who made the decision about the toilet paper. It's an innocent question. Like, who did that? It's just curious, right? He just, he reminds them about how long he's been doing blessings for bottoms. And he ends his email with a scripture verse. Lily doesn't know why the pastor declined her invitation for lunch last week. Do talk to the person directly. Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. You and him alone. There are times we have to bring in an additional person. Even the Bible tells us that. There are times when we do have to bring other people into our conflicts. But our go-to should always be to go to the person first. The pastor and the board's job is to run and lead this church, not to mitigate our personality conflicts. Yeah, they're good people, amazing people. Yes, we believe fully here in open and transparency and open door policies 100%. To a fault, probably, sometimes we're about vulnerability and transparency. But if your beef is with someone, you need to go to him or her first. And honestly, most conflict can be resolved with a conversation. Or better yet, take it to Jesus and you and Jesus work it out and maybe it can just be between you and two alone. Next, don't rally your people. After Billy, after church, Billy asks his friends, I'm like, did you notice anything different in the bathroom? Yeah, I'm not providing the toilet paper anymore. I, I don't know if you knew that, no. But like, it's not gossip, because it's true. It's not gossip, I'm not complaining. I've just been asking if, if you noticed anything different. Just asking, just asking for a friend, just asking. Do you like the new toilet paper? Does your bottom feel blessed? As blessed as it did last month, is it feeling blessed? And Lily, she's wondering why she's not getting invited to ladies' night anymore. Do strive to be peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9 says, You are blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of how to compete and fight. That's when you discover who you really are in your place in God's family. There is no blessing in rallying disunity or stirring up trouble. And finally, don't fall into the trap of believing that Jesus looks and feels like you. Don't believe that he's backing every decision you make, that he is on your side in every conflict. Billy and his friends write multiple emails to the board. They call the prayer chain, and they ask for spiritual help in this time of persecution. And it all culminates when Billy shows up 
uninvited, to the board meeting, and he demands that Blessing for Bottoms be reinstated or he will take his family, his ministry, and his tithe to a more godly house. Right? Lily, she stops going to church. Maybe it wasn't what she thought it was after all. Do remember that Jesus is the divine God and not our personal bodyguard. His will is mysterious and it's powerful and we do not fully know it ever this side of heaven. We submit to God and he does not submit to us. We don't tell him what to do or who is right. I don't care how biblical your side of the conflict is. Jesus never, never condones rude, angry, or divisive behavior. There are times when you have to walk away from a church, but you do it in a way that maintains the honor of that house and your good reputation. Now, I get, this is a silly example with puppets. I like the puppets. I feel they add to my whole thing here. But isn't that how it starts, right? Something that's small and silly, that was handled incorrectly, and then it escalates. Was it really about the toilet paper? No. It was about unforgiveness and about power and position and control. The thing is never the thing. 20 years of being up here and leading teams and leading ministry tells me the thing is never the thing. Billy could have rejoiced that somebody else was being a part of the family. He could have taken Blessings for Bottoms to a shelter or anywhere else and served amazingly and then two people would have been blessed by serving. Instead, he engaged in an unhealthy church conflict and nobody's bottom was blessed. We can't afford to be bogged down by unhealthy conflict. Our mission is too important. I need to figuratively lay my life down for those around me because Jesus literally lay his life down for me. I want to review, we've been hitting this one hard, but I want to review the four G's of the gospel one more time in light of church conflict. So think about the church conflict, the unhealthy church conflict that you've seen, you've walked through, and if those who are part of it had submitted themselves and really internalized these four G's, how it could have turned out differently. The first one, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is gracious, we don't have to be afraid of others. God is good, we don't have to look elsewhere. And God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. How true is this when we think of our conflicts? If we are willing to give up control, to trust others, and just to be okay with who we are, how much unhealthy church conflict would decrease? We're going to sing this new song that Kayla introduced one more time. And that first verse talks about how all of creation cries out, Christ be magnified. As we move into a different time, I'm just going to move these guys out of the way. I feel like, yeah, you know, here, right in front of you, Kayla. There we go. Yeah, they're good there. <laughs> oh. That first verse says that all of creation cries out, right? If the whole earth was articulate, how even the rocks would cry out, Christ be magnified. The whole earth, the whole of creation declares the glory of God, and here we are fighting about proverbial toilet paper. How tiny our petty squabbles must seem. When you think, if you lay on your back and look out at the stars, how tiny our petty squabbles seem in light of a God who makes all of that. 
We need to do better. The world around us deserves it. The next generation demands it. And quite honestly, scripture commands it. We must do better at the one another. We must do better at loving one another. So we're gonna go into just a time of worship. And I want us to pray for CT. I want us to pray for this community that would be a safe community for all those who enter. That we would be a people who are willing to do the hard work of looking internally and asking God, what is my part in all of this? That we'd be first, when you have feel offense or anger rise up, we would first take it to Jesus and honestly say, like, search me and try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. That would be our go-to. That we'd be able to retrain our loose lips, retrain our minds, retrain our reactions to being the type of people who prefer one another. That we would be, we'd be, have a hard time making decisions, not because we're afraid someone would get mad, but because all be, each of us would just say, well, whatever you like whatever you think is best, and honestly mean it, that we prefer each other so much that, like, we're just this place that is such a sharp contrast to the competitive, angry, disillusioned world around us. And then that would be that beacon of hope and light to a community who needs us. So as we worship, we're going to pray. You can just pray where you are. But honestly, let's take a time to take the next four minutes and just cry out for our community. Thanks. Thanks.